Well, it's been a couple of weeks, but we're back in the Gospel of Matthew, so please turn there or go there in your uh, copy of God's Word. And chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8. Last time we were in Matthew's Gospel, we finished up the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 in Matthew chapter 8. And uh, this passage for today um, marks a distinct shift in Jesus' ministry. Um, we just we spent several weeks looking at the um, Sermon on the Mount, which was obviously teaching, teaching-oriented, teaching-centric. And now we're going to be noticing uh, Jesus' ministry in terms of performing miracles. A big shift. Emphasis on teaching to now an emphasis on performing miracles. But in both of these cases, teaching and miracles, Jesus was displaying his, defi- his divine authority as the Messiah. Or as Matthew had introduced Jesus to us in Matthew chapter 1, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So without any further delay or introduction, let's dive right in. And uh, in this passage, there are four miraculous healing stories. There are more healings in the Gospel of Matthew, but in this passage, we're going to be looking at four miraculous healing stories, and the first one involves a leper in verses 1 through 4. So let's read those verses. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain, and that was the mountain where he had uh, taught the Sermon on the Mount, it's called the Mount of the Beatitudes today, Great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So, leprosy was a very terrible disease in the ancient world. And uh, I'll just read for you an excerpt from WebMD about leprosy. It's an infectious disease that causes severe, disfiguring skin sores and nerve damage in the arms, legs, and around your body. It's caused by a slow-growing type of bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. Leprosy is also known as Hansen's disease after the scientist who discovered the bacteria in 1873. And it's existed since, since ancient times, obviously. And then the article in WebMD continues, it's rare, but people do still get the disease today. About 208,000 people worldwide are infected with leprosy, most of them in Africa and Asia, according to the World Health Organization. About 100 people are diagnosed in the U.S. every year. 
mostly in the South, California, Hawaii, and some U.S. territories. So leprosy. It was a terrible disease medically. It's not as terrible today because there's a cure for it, uh, a medical cure, because it's caused by a bacteria and there are antibiotics available. But in the ancient world, it was uh, a death sentence often, uh, a long, excruciating death over years, if not decades. And if the disease didn't kill the person, starvation would, because it would render the person uh, unable to provide for themselves and excluded from the covenant community in Israel because leprosy symbolizes uh, our uncleanness because of sin. And so leprosy was included in the Mosaic law in the book of Leviticus. So for example, Leviticus chapter 13 verses 45 and 46, we read, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so in biblical times, leprosy was a terrible diagnosis to receive. It was terrible for a person's health and livelihood, but for their um, communal living as well. And so here's a man who was in that terrible, sad state, and he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ for healing. And he has confidence that all it takes is the willingness of Jesus and this man, this leprous man, could be healed. And in spite of the restrictions from the book of Leviticus, notice Jesus' response in verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately... His leprosy was clean. It was cleansed. Jesus was willing to touch an unclean man. That's an important part of his healing ministry, but it's an important part of Jesus' role as our Savior. Jesus is not afraid to get down and dirty, to get his hands on unclean people because that's the kind of savior that Jesus is there's no uncleanness there's no evil there's no sin or transgression or depravity that is beyond the ability of Jesus Christ to cleanse Amen. what's required is for a person to come to Jesus to have faith in Jesus to trust in Jesus for cleansing and healing. And then you'll notice in verse 3 as well that Jesus touched the man and immediately 
his leprosy was cleansed. It didn't take a whole bunch of times. It didn't take uh, a progression of the man working up enough faith. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And this is even a better healing than modern medicine. Because in modern medicine, if somebody gets a diagnosis of leprosy and they do get prescribed this course of antibiotics, and thank God that those antibiotics exist, but it takes months. It's a terrible bacteria. It takes months to be cured of leprosy, even today. But when Jesus touched this man, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then the story continues in verse 4. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And this was in keeping with the Mosaic law about leprosy in Leviticus chapter 14. And Jesus wants the man to uh, to honor the law of God, and he wants the man to be pronounced clean by the priest, to be ceremonially cleansed. His purpose in healing the man was to restore the man's life, not to prematurely spread his own fame. That would come, but this wasn't the time. And so Jesus told the man, don't say anything to anyone. So Jesus healed a leper. Then, oh, right. That's the, a view of the Sea of Galilee from the Mount of Beatitudes, by, by the way. Um, next, Jesus healed the centurion's servant. And that's in verses 5 through 13. Um, I like maps and figures and pictures and stuff like that. It helps me to understand the narrative, but it also reinforces the fact that what we read in the Bible actually happened. These are historical events and real settings, real places that you can go to today. And there's lots of archaeological finds that uh, support the biblical narrative. So the centurion's servant, notice verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. So here's the map. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, well, here's Capernaum. Here's the Sea of Galilee been a while since we've talked about it. Remember, it's roughly the size of Lake Isabella when it's full, which is like now. Uh, here's the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mount the, of the Beatitudes is just outside of Capernaum in the hills here, about a mile northwest. And so Jesus comes down from the Mount of Beatitudes and he goes into Capernaum which is, by the way, where Peter lived 
It's where Matthew lived, who wrote the book of Matthew, of course. And uh, Matthew was undoubtedly an eyewitness of the things that he heard and saw. And so um, this takes place in Capernaum, as well as many more of Jesus's uh, more memorable miracles. And uh, in Capernaum, Jesus is met by this uh, centurion, we're told. And a centurion was a Roman uh, army officer who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. That didn't mean that they always had a hundred soldiers under, under them, sometimes 60, sometimes 80, but sometimes a hundred. But that's what centurion literally means. So he is an army officer. He has uh, soldiers under him, and he has a servant who served him and his family in his household. And the servant was not property to this centurion, but a beloved member of his family, a human being whom he cared for. Um, and he was sick, paralyzed. In verse 6, the centurion says, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So it's interesting that out of all the things this centurion could come to Jesus about, the one thing that he comes to Jesus about is the well-being of his servant. Such was his love and concern for this individual. And uh, Jesus responds in verse 7, and he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion said that maybe because he's aware of the fact that Jesus uh, is a Jewish rabbi. He is claiming to be and proving himself to be not only a rabbi, but the very Messiah of the Jews. And he was a Gentile, and so it wasn't kosher for a man in Jesus' role to come into the home of this uh, Gentile man. Maybe that is going on in this man's mind. Maybe it's a, it's a sense of his own sinfulness, but whatever the case was, he did not see himself as being worthy. But he also displayed great faith. Notice verse 9. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Maybe that servant who's paralyzed and suffering terribly. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's a strong statement. Here's Jesus encountering a Gentile 
And not just any Gentile, but an army official in the occupying army of the Roman Empire. Occupying Israel. A Gentile with a sword, with power, with authority. And he marvels because of his faith. And he doesn't just say, wow, this guy has faith just like the Jews. Just like my kinsmen, according to the flesh. No. He says, with no one in Israel, not a single one among the Jews have I found such faith. It's quite a statement. And he goes on in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven here means when heaven comes to the earth, when the promise of Israel and the the old covenant is absolutely, completely fulfilled, even beyond the new covenant. But when heaven comes to the earth and the kingdom of heaven is here on the earth and people sit down and eat with the covenant community, including the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And he continues on in verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, meaning the natural offspring of Abraham, the ones who are the natural heirs of the kingdom, those were the ones to whom the kingdom was promised. The heirs of the promises, the receivers of the covenants, the Jews under the old covenant, Jesus says they will be thrown into the outer darkness. That's a description of hell. Apart from the light of God, apart from the kingdom of heaven, a place of torment and suffering, because Jesus goes on to say in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an amazing statement. Not only was the faith of this centurion far beyond the faith of any of the Jews whom Jesus had had encountered. Not only that, but Jesus says, it is Gentiles who have faith like this centurion who will be in heaven while Jews who don't have faith, will be in hell. That's what Jesus is saying. An amazing statement. So this story continues in verse 13. It concludes, And to the centurion, Jesus says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So in the case of the 
leper, Jesus touched him and healed him. In the case of the centurion, Jesus wasn't even in the same room, not even in the same house, not even in the same vicinity. From a distance, just by his will, he healed him. And remember what the centurion said? For I too am a man under authority, and I say this or that. The centurion knew Jesus had this authority to do this. Jesus did it. Jesus has great authority. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount ended? And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He showed his authority in his teaching. Now he's showing his authority in his healing. And that's not all. Then there's Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house... He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now remember, Jesus is in Capernaum. So this is um, the archaeological remains of a structure in Capernaum. So Capernaum was unknown for centuries and then was unearthed by archaeologists, I believe, in the 1800s. And then... Uh, archaeologists dug under the remains that they discovered and found the remains of more and more layers of Capernaum, more and more iterations of Capernaum. And they actually got down to the original settlement. They think they discovered the actual synagogue where Jesus preached in Luke chapter 4. And believe it or not, they believe they discovered Peter's house. This is not Peter's house, but this is on top of Peter's house. Actually, Peter's house was next door, and he kept his mother-in-law there next door. (laughs) Just teasing Helen. (laughs) So here's another sick person. This time it's Peter's mother-in-law, and she had a fever. And once again... Jesus' touch comes into play, verse 15. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Instantaneous healing. Not take a couple Tylenol, and after a while your fever will break, and after a week... The fever will actually go away from the sickness. No, he touched her. The fever left her. And then she did what Christians do. What people who have faith do. She rose and began to serve him. That's what our health is for. Our health is not just for us. Our lives and possessions 
are not just for our enjoyment, though that's certainly part of it. But we as believers have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, purchased at a price in order to serve. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the calling for all Christians. And that's what Peter's mother-in-law did. And even she's not the end of these healing stories. It continues. Many who were demon-possessed and sick, in verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. When you read through the, the New Testament, and in particular the, the Gospels, um, the epistles of the New Testament as well, but especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read a lot about the devil and his activity. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was personally tempted by the devil. And then we're going to read a lot about demons. And it's tempting to think, wow, there seems to have been a lot of demonic activity in the ancient world. Good thing there's not today. And as a believer, I've come to learn the practice of looking at reality through the lens of God's word, not through the lens of the secular news media and history books, and the like. And, and when you look at, even today, the news, current events, through the lens of Scripture, and then you hear about really dark, evil things that people do. Some people do. And then you hear, oh, they were diagnosed with this, this mental illness, or they were sentenced to die or spend the rest of their lives in jail or but do you ever notice that in the news these terrible grotesque acts of violence and darkness let me suggest to you that demons are active today the devil is active today. In fact, we're told that he's like a roaring lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. And let me suggest to you that a lot, not all, but a, a lot of what ends up getting called this disease and that mental illness, I'm not saying all mental illness is demonic. I'm not saying that at all. But sometimes things are put in more manageable, uh, tame terms. And sometimes I think people are possessed or they're uh, at least oppressed by demons and then they do demonic things. Well, 
Jesus has authority over demons. These many who were oppressed by demons who were brought to him, he cast out the spirits with a word. Again, notice the authority of Jesus. He says a word. Gone. Away. There goes the demon. And he also healed all who were sick. The language suggests every single one without exception. None was turned away. None was too hard. None was beyond the authority of Jesus Christ to heal. Why did all of this happen? Why did Jesus do the things that he did? Matthew tells us, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Then he quotes from Isaiah 53 and verse 4, part of the passage that Pastor Kevin read earlier. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Why is that significant? Well, remember what Matthew is doing here. Matthew is telling a story, not just here, but beginning in Matthew chapter 1. That story begins with the introduction of Jesus and his, his incredible birth from a virgin. And an angel from heaven told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's when uh, Matthew says that his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then there's the description, the, the narrative of Jesus' earthly ministry by eyewitnesses like Matthew. Great authority. Then we come to the end when Jesus dies. We're told about his death on Calvary's cross. And we're supposed to connect those dots. We're supposed to realize wow, here's this man with incredible authority. To say things like, you have heard of those, that it was said to those of old, dot, 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 but I say to you. And then he demonstrates this authority by touching and cleansing a leper. By healing the centurion servant at a distance by his word. By healing Peter's mother-in-law by casting out demons and healing all who were sick. What authority. This man with that kind of authority died on Calvary's cross. And that's so important because here's some more of what Isaiah said from that same chapter 
Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of God's people. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. Well, where was Jesus' authority then when he died? Did it expire? Did his death show that he didn't have authority after all? No, it was actually more powerful then than ever before. Because Isaiah also wrote, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus died, but he rose again. His authority was not only confirmed, but it was shown to extend to include death itself. Even his own death. When he died on the cross, he had the authority to die in our place, to bear the sins of many. But then he had the authority to rise again and to thereby justify us, provide the very righteousness of God available to us through faith so that we could be justified by faith in his name. That is the point. It's not, oh, look at this wonderful miracle worker. The point is, look at this Savior. Look at this Messiah. Look at this King of kings and Lord of lords. This one who came and lived and worked miracles and died and rose again to take away our sins. This one who said, after he arose from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which means he continues to have authority to take away your sins now. You don't have to go to Peter's house in Capernaum. You don't need Jesus even to physically touch you. You need Jesus' authoritative word. Be cleansed. Be healed. Away with you demons. God's calling for you is believe in Jesus. Have faith in the Son of God. 
entrust your life and the salvation of your never-dying soul to him and his promises, you will be saved.